Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Over the course of his prolific career, trombonist, composer, producer, and educator Delphio Marsalis has been hailed as one of the most imaginative trombonists of his generation and cited for his technical excellence, inventive mind, and frequent touches of humor. He spent decades in musical exploration, preparation, and risk-taking, beginning during his childhood in New Orleans, where his father, Ellis Marcellus, introduced him to jazz. At the same time, he was developing an interest in music production. After interning at Alan Toussaint's Sea Saint studio, he went on to produce more than 100 recordings by a variety of jazz artists. In 2011, the Marcellus family's musicians, Del Delphio, Father Ellis Marsalis, and brothers Branford, Winton, and Jason were honored with the nation's highest jazz honor, the National Endowment for the Jazz Masters Award. Uh, his uh, the latest album will be released uh, on the Troubadour Jazz label uh, next month. Uh, it's his seventh with the Uptown Jazz Orchestra. Uh, he will be performing tonight at the, uh, at, with the group at uh, the Rockwood Music Hall Stage 2, located at 196 Allen Street, Lower East Side of Manhattan, showtime at 8.30. And then tomorrow they'll be at Iridium, which is located at uh, 1650 Broadway in Manhattan, and that begins at 9.30. I think I've gotten covered everything, have I? Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm so pleased that you were able to come here. But you brought a crowd. Oh, yeah. That's how we travel. You know? I expected four or five musicians. How many people did you bring? Uh, I think we just had about 12 or 13. Yeah. 12 or so? 12 or 13. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we have the fabulous Miss Tanya Boyd Cannon, so 14. Yeah. And are they all members of the Uptown Jazz Orchestra? Yes. Yes. Where does that name come from? Uptown Jazz Orchestra. Well, you know, I, I formed the Uptown Music Theater in mm-hmm. 2000, and the focus to was to teach youngsters um, uh, music theater. Mm-hmm and uh, the dramatic arts. So we started that. And then about 2000, I guess a decade later, 2008 or nine, we started the Uptown Jazz. So I like the idea. I live Uptown. We all live. My, mm. my dad lives Uptown. In, in New uh, Orleans. In New Orleans, Uptown. So that's the significance in the Uptown Jazz Orchestra. Uh, and you've been kind of like uh, in residence uh, at the Snug Harbor Jazz Bistro in New Orleans. Right. So Snug Harbor is the primary listening room in in New Orleans, and uh, we've been there on Wednesday nights. We're still there, you know, and that's just what we do. You uh, often talk about your New Orleans roots. How many members of the orchestra are from New Orleans? I'm counting You're counting now. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, so a lot. Oh yes, and do you think that there is a new, uh, specific New Orleans approach to jazz? Oh, for sure, it's undoubtable. And, and, well, and jazz kind of started in New Orleans. The old tradition is, and then moved up the Mississippi. But then there was New York style, there's Chicago style, L.A., uh, New Orleans. Uh, if somebody really knows what uh, he or she is listening to, will say, "Oh, that's those are New Orleans musicians." Yeah, the New Orleans style is is has lasted the longest. Like I don't know that the New York style is what people are playing today around. Now, the New York style has changed and shifted a lot more, I would think, because most of the, the New York musicians aren't from New York mm-hmm. City. They come here, just for example, you know, if you want to see Miles Davis or Charlie Parker or Coltrane, whoever it was, most of them are not from 
New York. Uh, Louis, or, uh, New, Louis Armstrong, who was from New Orleans, lived in Queens. Louis went to, to Queens, but he kept, he kept that New Orleans sound. And you know, the New Orleans sound is a great thing that people really love is that it's rooted in the funk. It's a funky sound. It's something that is, represents the blues. And we always say that New Orleans is the last real original city in the country because we've kept more of the African traditions mm. than any other city in the country. That's what people love. They come down there, they love the dance. They love the food. They love the music. They love the culture, they love the, the, the hospitality, and those are all that come straight out of Africa, baby. And we're keeping it happening, and that's what it is. And you hear that in the music, you know? So that's why the title of your new album is called Jazz Party. Jazz Party. It definitely feels appropriate. It has this real New Orleans feel to it. Uh, but I, I wonder about recording in a studio. Is it difficult to recreate the feeling and energy that you get in a live performance? No, you're about to hear it right now. <laughs> you're about to hear what we do. You know, we bring the thing. And that's the other the great thing about New Orleans musicians is that we play in front of people all the time. Yeah. And we believe that it's important to entertain the audience and for the, to bring the audience in. And, and it's like they're all part of the show with us. And sometimes it's difficult in, in other uh, I guess types of bands where you're just presenting it more like maybe like a symphony orchestra and you want the people to, to really be atten attentive and respected and not so much get involved. But the whole New Orleans thing is about the involvement of everybody. It's an inclusive music. And since uh, New Orleans has such a diverse population, uh, the album res uh, reflects many musical traditions uh, of New Orleans, jazz, jump blues, funk, Latin and and Caribbean rhythms as well. Oh yeah, we have uh, Mr. Paul for our bassist. His favorite song is the, the Caribbean Second Line. So <laughs> we might play a little bit of that later on. Well, <laughs> well what are you going to play for us now? Uh, we're going to start off actually with a song from the uh, Soul Rebels, and this one that they called "Let Your Mind Be Free." Thank you. 
Wow. <laughs> the, the Uptown Jazz <laughs> Orchestra playing Let Your Mind Be Free with uh, some wonderful solos there as the tenor. Who's yes, the sir. Tenor? We just heard from the Reverend Roderick Paulin, mm-hmm. and he comes from Uptown also. And you just seem to be having so much fun. It really comes across. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's what we do. And, uh, again, that's another trait of New Orleans music is that it's enjoyable for everybody. You know, the audience, we want to have a good time. We have, we have a good time, and it's one big party. And that's the one thing that you learn from Louis Armstrong. You know, cause we Actually, say, even Jelly Roll Morton, who used to write, used to do some pretty funny recordings. Right. Jelly Roll had a, a great sense of humor. But, you know, the thing about Louis Armstrong is, I would say we're in some pretty tough times right now in the country, and it looks like it's going to get tougher. But uh, Louis Armstrong, he came around, and there were some really tough times. And there's something about the way that he perceived the music that no matter what was going on around him, whatever foolishness or the setup was, when he, you heard the sound of his horn or the magnificence of his voice, you knew that everything was going to be all right. And in that's this case, something from New Orleans. In this case, we're, uh, we're doing the whole thing acoustic. Not, nobody is mic'd. Uh, we're just having the, I guess, the regular voice mics here take take it all in. But you like to record acoustic, don't you? I like to record acoustic. Well, you know, I, I believe you got to make it happen. So mm-hmm. the electric is not so bad, but we don't believe on a reliance of, you know, of the electrical component, especially with the bass and the bass director. If you can capture the, the warmth and that, that, you know, the fatness of the bass sound, mm-hmm. it's comforting. You know, the bass is just a... <laughs> it has a comforting sound. Uh, so my... My preference, of course, is the acoustic music mm-hmm. because the electric signal, will, you know, it will never give you that, that same richness of the, like the human interaction. So. Well, they also say that the trombone comes closest to the sound of the human voice. Oh, yes, of course. We got the slide. and uh, Yeah, well, we'll, we'll you know, saxophone players that might want it. It's just what it is. <laughs> That's why whenever we, ha- we want to say, yeah, sax is like, hold on, man, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, Nadia. <laughs> You've talked uh, about jazz as a model of the democratic process. Well, right now there's a strong partisan political divide in this country. Does that happen in jazz as well? No, for sure not. And Do you know, bring the, musicians from all over the world together, and somehow they connect. Well, if they're in tune with it, I mean, we always know what it should be. And you know, the funny thing is that the founding fathers. I have a brother named Ellis, and he's not in music, but Man, he really studied the philosophy and in, in, in history. And he pointed out that the founding fathers that signed the Declaration of Independence, only four of them actually believed in democracy. Mm-hmm. The rest of them, they wanted to create a, a government similar to what they had in England. It's just they were like, we're going to make sure we're on the top. A number of them were slave owners as well. Oh, yeah. But that's all part of it. And that's what we find one of the, the challenges we have in the country now is that many people are not interested in democracy. They just want a, a government that's going to be on their side, where they're going to benefit. But, you know, again, coming from New Orleans, the whole vibe and the whole thing about the group is like every individual has an opportunity. That's the basic fundamental vibe of democracy is you individually you have a choice, you have a voice, but also it's about the group collectively. And that's why we all believe in the group more so than what we're doing individually. You know, the soloing is all part of what the group is trying to accomplish. Although many musicians have told me that they think of a jazz performance as similar to a conversation. Everyone is listening to everyone else, and, and that can affect the way 
different people play. The piano player suddenly goes off on some kind of a, a riff. The the uh, the person who's soloing on trumpet or trombone or tenor or whatever uh, mm -hmm. might very well hear it and then uh, take off on that. That's Just true. Just like a conversation. Well, and you know what you find if you've talked to anybody about politics today, we're not listening. Mm -hmm. When it comes to politics, I have my side, and don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. And great jazz, you cannot have that attitude. So we're listening and we're responding, and that's what we really aspire to include everyone as much as we can. It's my great pleasure uh, to have as our guest today uh, Delphio Marcellus and members of the Uptown Jazz Orchestra. Uh, we, you have a, a new CD out, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, having it live in the studio is just such a thrill. Now, some of the, can we talk about some of the songs on the CD? Sure. There's one in Boya's Midnight Cocktail, which feels like a scene out of a movie where the listener is eavesdropping on a conversation one might hear in a jazz club. Uh, who's mm -hmm. the woman who's talking over the music? So that's an actress. Uh, her name is Kaya Karen Livers, and she was not only in Treme, but I've known her for, for many years. Actually, I didn't realize that she was in high school at the New Orleans Center of Creative Arts when I was in elementary school, and that was the first time that I met her. But she's been instrumental in teaching some of our uptown music theater kids, and uh, I knew that she'd have the perfect voice to pull that, that particular track off. And you end the album with an instrumental version of the same song. Right. So the deal with Mboya, Mboya is my younger brother, and I recently have been spending more time with him. He's autistic. He's nonverbal. And uh, I caught a little flag. But there are seven brothers? There's, six. there's six of us, Yeah. right? Man, I got to think about yeah, it. Yeah, right, right. there's six. Branford and Winton, Ellis, myself, yeah. Mboya, and Jason. So uh, I caught a little feedback because, you know, Mboya, he likes to throw back. You know, we might go have a couple of bourbons. Or, <laughs> so uh, it was funny to me, the, the circumstances. One, we were out one time, and a young lady approached, and she said, you know, well, how old is he? And she showed a certain level of interest. It, it's clear, you know, that he's nonverbal. So the way the song goes is the bartender is conjuring in her mind all these different things about this particular person because he's nonverbal. And she's like, oh, you know, almost like, oh, okay, you're trying to play hard to get. <laughs> so that's how the song came up. So we wrote the song, and we recorded it. And at first, it's similar to actually when we did the track Make America Great Again. We had the instrumental version, and I said, man, it's just, it lends itself to some kind of a narration or some kind of voice. So then I wrote, wrote out what the story was, and that's how it works both ways. And one of the other tracks has a really great title, Raid on the Mingus House Party. So, Ray, <laughs> yeah, what we do sometimes, we might even do it this morning, we'll make up songs just spontaneously. And the, the actual truth... He was truth, very New York, Charlie Mingus. Right, but the actual truth of that song is we... We created a song spontaneously in Minneapolis, and at that moment, it was when the Black Panther movie was out. So originally, we were like, this is inspired by the Black Panther. And, you know, so we had the, the fundamental basis for the song, and then we came up with, it sounds kind of what Mingus would compose. And it, it has, Mingus understood a lot about orchestration. It's something mm -hmm. that he figured out from Duke Ellington. So he took many, much of what Duke Ellington did with the large ensemble, Mingus figured out how to pare that down for a smaller ensemble. And I used some of those techniques you have the, the saxophone and the tenor saxophone and the trombone is playing the melody line, and then the trumpets come in with harmony. They're playing together, and then you have the other saxophone playing something. The baritone sax is playing something all together different than the other trombone has. So we got about nine or ten different things going on at one time. 
So uh, I thought it was uh, apropos to pay homage to Charles Mingus, similar to what he would compose. As you mentioned, you were the third of four jazz musician brothers, Branford on saxophone, Winton on trumpet, Jason drums and, and vibraphone. Uh, does it feel as though you were destined to play jazz? Uh, no. I mean, it feels... Because you have been in just, music all your life. Your father is a pianist. I studied, you know, I studied classical music all throughout high school, and I've always loved that. That's where I think my love for the acoustic sound emanated from playing in the orchestras and just the richness of that sound. And I still feel that when you hear a, a symphony orchestra with music written by a great composer, there's nothing like that, that sound that you get. So much of what we do a lot of times is it's not just we're thinking about it from the jazz point. We're thinking about it just from the standpoint of all music that's ever mm-hmm. been produced and how do we create something unique in the sound field based on that. Well, Bach sure could swing. Who you said, Bach? <laughs> yes. Bach, oh yeah, Beethoven, Mozart, all those guys. Stravinsky is really the yeah. one. The Chicago Symphony, man, I got a recording of the Chicago, Chicago Symphony playing Petrushka. In fact, I sent it to the band. I'm like, this is how we need to sound. <laughs> we can sound like this, just from the standpoint of the tone quality and the richness. That's what we're trying to accomplish, you know. And what was your first instrument? Uh, trombone. Oh, well, no, okay. I started off, like, I think on bass. Maybe it was real. It was weak. Did somebody boy. tell you uh, that it, trombone is a very difficult instrument to play? Anybody warn you? No. no when I, once I saw it, I'm like, man, I don't, nobody would want to play this. I'm going to play it. <laughs> Who would want to do this? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think that it's difficult from the standpoint of you just have to, to understand. It's like, what are you trying to accomplish with it? So if you listen at the early Louis Armstrong records, the trombone has a very specific mm-hmm. role. And a lot of times we try Aww. to, we, well, that's part of it. But, you know, the, the trombone, for example, the trumpet and the clarinet, well, at often points they have written parts. The trombone is the only instrument really that most of the time there's no written part. So we have to decide, are we going to play like the bass and the tuba? Are we going to play uh, counterline to what the trumpet and the saxophone or the clarinet is doing? Are we going to harmonize with them? So the trombone really... You know, that's what trombone players are so cool, man. You got to be cool to play trombone. You yeah, but you also, <laughs> there are no valves on the trombone, although there are valve trombones, but you have right. the slide. You have to really uh, manipulate your lips and your tongue to get all the things that the valves would get on another brass instrument. Right. Is, doesn't that uh All these guys with buttons trouble? and keys, you know, they just press the button yeah. down and the note comes out, you know. <laughs> No, I, you know, it's, it's uh, all instruments, I think, there's a certain level of difficulty, and it's up to us to bring our personality through in whatever way we can. Now, you also left New Orleans to pursue an education in music. Uh, wasn't playing with some pretty great musicians at home enough? Well, no, I, you know, there's not as much of a, of, of a variety of musicians, I would say, especially then, you know, Elvin Jones and Art Blakey and Matt Roach. I mean, you keep you on know. talking about drummers. <laughs> yeah, well, that's hey, that's who I happen to be. You know, <laughs> you played with a lot of drummers. That's that's kind of how it worked out, you know. But uh, the, the but also I've, I've you know had the opportunity to meet and work with like Ron Carter and mm. Herbie Hancock and Clark Terry. I mean, the list goes on. And those are the guys whose bands I I performed in. But you know, the older musicians, th- there's no possibility that you could meet them and spend any significant time with them and not understand not only their love for music, but their love for life and how much you want to, to represent what they represented. And that's the great thing. That's something I think, unfortunately, many of the younger musicians didn't have that opportunity 
when you meet Ray Charles, you know, I spent some time with Ray Charles and Fats Domino, and just there was a realness and a purity to these individuals that we're still trying to get to. On the other hand, I've spoken to some musicians who said that they got tired of being sidemen. Uh, Pete LaRocca Sims, for example, a great drummer, he said uh, he quit playing because every group that he was in, he had to play like the lead, the way the leader wanted him to play, and he wanted to play the way he wanted to play. So when he finally came back to music after getting a degree in law and, be, and practicing as a lawyer, he then only had his own groups. Well, I mean, that's and cool. You're the leader. Well, there's that. But, I mean, that's how many people want to quit their jobs. It's like that's just <laughs> what that is. That's part of it. But, you know, it requires a certain type of discipline. And, you know, some people can, can deal with it. Some people prefer to be. You look at Kenny Kirkland is the great example, one of the, the great influences on me. And he was never interested in having his own band. I mean, Kenny Kirkland was so serious to me, the, the great modern pianist of our time. And uh, he just was not interested. It took forever to help him to produce that one record that he finally did. And I still consider that one of my great achievements as a producer was finalizing that project because Kenny just didn't, he wanted to be in bands. He wanted to be in great bands more than he wanted to lead his own band. So I I see it both ways, you know. Now, what got you started producing records? Uh, how old were you when you began interning for Alan Toussaint at, at Sea Saint Studio? Oh, that, that was, I was in high school at that point. I, I was interested. Branford really was the original producer in the family, and he showed me how to create a feedback loop on an old Tascam tape recorder, and that piqued my interest. And, and he also would make recordings where he had fade the music in and he had announced the songs. So he'd, he'd fade the music in and then he'd say, J.J. Johnson and Stan Getz live at the Opera House, Herb Ellis, and he'd <laughs> mention all the musicians and then he'd say the songs and then he'd fade the music out. He was doing radio announcing. He was doing he was doing that, but there was something about it. I said, I was thinking about it. I said, now, okay, he does that, but then he does it, and then the same song comes on because he would use the first track. So I'm sort of analyzing. I said, man, how could I change this up? So I said, I'm gonna use the last track <laughs> because by the time the people hear the last track, they will have forgotten that that's what I used in the beginning. So it was just this thing that went on, and uh, and the other part of that was that there was a need for a producer. There was a need for somebody that could you know press the red button and have it. And I just had an interest in. And I'm, you know, my mother was a person that always she wanted things organized a certain kind of way all of the time, and she was perfect for my dad because he just wants to play piano, so he's just like, look, just show me the piano. So I think that skill, that skill set has kind of helped out. Alan Toussaint was one of the finest and most influential rhythm and blues performers, songwriters, producers. Yeah, uh, working in the coal mine is still one of my favorite records of all time. Working what did you learn from him mine. in terms of of working with jazz artists and and producing their albums? You know, I, I regret that I didn't spend more time with with Mr. Toussaint, especially from a compositional standpoint of view. But you know, he was a a, a su supreme musician. In fact, we were in the studio one time. This was later on, so. When I worked as an intern, I was not working directly under him. It was with, you know, I was learning the engineering and the production craft. But there was one time we were producing an album, Derek Shesby, and we had a song and we couldn't figure out the chord changes. And he happened to be in the studio. I said, man, bro, come, we need you to hook up this changes, man. He sat down. He knew just what it was. He's like, man, yeah, you could do this. He reminded me of my dad because that's what my dad is. He said, you could do this or you could do that. I'm like, damn, man, which one do you think? He said, I was like, that's which one it is. So he's just a great musician. And uh, the, the, the sign to me of great musicianship is the ability to make the right musical choice in the moment for what's required. And no more, no less. And that's what we all, we aim to do. 
You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. Um, uh, Obviously, you saw that as a cue. Yes, sir. To to play something else. We're going to play one that we wrote St. Patrick's Day. Folks was out partying and celebrating in the streets, if you can imagine that, in New Orleans. And we were running late from the gig because of that, and we came up with this here. And this is entitled The Irish Whiskey Blues. Okay, well, let me tell people again that uh, my guests are uh, Delfio Marsalis and the Uptown Jazz Orchestra. Thank you. 
And really impressed by that triple tonguing you did at the beginning. Uh, that usually is uh, done on trombone more than other instruments for some reason. What's that? The triple tonguing. Uh, yeah, well, the tr- you know, the trumpets also, but there's a certain way that the valve works that they can do it, and it's, uh, we like you mentioned earlier, we have to rely on the, the tongue technique more so. Uh-huh. So uh, we had wonderful solos on alto and trumpet who were... Who yes, did we just heard from uh, Kyrie Allen Lee, who is actually from uh, Tuskegee, Alabama, and Andrew Baham, who is the pride of the Crescent City in the Ninth Ward. And I should uh, give the names of the other members of the, this group. Or do you want to do it? That's okay. fine. Yeah, sure. We have David Paulfus from St. Louis on the stand-up bass. Orlando Gilbert, of course, from the Seventh Ward in New Orleans on the tenor saxophone. Amari Ansari, alto saxophone, Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. We said the Reverend Roderick Parlin and uh, the Dirty Old Man. We got to hear from the Dirty Old Man soon. That's Roger Lewis, who was not only the founding member of the Uptown Jazz Orchestra along with myself, but also he's one of the founding members of the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, so we're always delighted and honored to have him out here on the road. Then we have the venerable John Gray, and he has the distinction of being the under-200-pound cow-tipping champion of Baton Rouge. (laughs) 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 And then we got (laughs) the man, the myth, the legend, in his own mind, Terrence Hollywood Taplin on the slide trombone, Mm -hmm. a gentleman who spent many years matriculating institutions for higher meeting and lower learning so that he could put a DR period in front of his name, talking about... Durr, Dr. Bryce Miller. And this gentleman here, we said, bro, where are you from? And he said, Earth. Yeah. So we always say, representing planet Earth, we got Scott Frock yeah. on the trumpet, Scott Frockus. And of course, from the Crescent City, from also from Uptown, Joe Dyson Jr., yeah. we're always delighted. Thank you, Brother Dyson, for coming in. And uh, we haven't heard yet from the fabulous Miss Tanya Boyd Cannon. And, uh, She's a vocalist. That's, yes, indeed. And she was uh, one of the finalists on, on The Voice. I oh, know. yeah. She can sing for real. So is she a New Orleans I native? don't think so. Is she? She is, right? She's from Mississippi. She's from Mississippi. So, yeah. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Not same thing. <laughs> well, my daddy people from Summit, from Mississippi. Is, so is listening. <laughs> my, they know what I'm saying, man. You know, you get down south, we all have a certain kind of a certain kind of a thing. Here we go. Well, we, got, well, we got a photo coming. Okay, here we go. Yeah. For <laughs> most of, of jazz history, musicians mm-hmm. improvised on the chord changes uh, of a song. But things began to change in the 60s with Ornette Coleman, and then uh, free jazz came along. Uh, you, mm-hmm. You're not doing any of that. Oh, we can. Uh-huh. Yeah, we can. Well, you know, the thing about Ornette Coleman, though, is he, he first started off playing on changes and a, yeah. a lot of blueses. But I remember when he came to New York. Or- it was a big—it divided the jazz uh, fans— some just thought this was the, the most exciting thing, and others said, this is crazy stuff. Right, and the thing about Ornette Coleman, a lot like Charles Mingus, was Ornette, his music was designed to, to, to get underneath your skin. It had that sound, so you could hear someone like Louis Armstrong, and Duke Ellington, and Count Basie, and his, his music was, that was the, the foundation. You hear that, you say, man, everything is going to be all right. And Ornette Coleman says, yeah, everything's going to be all right, but everything ain't all right. <laughs> So that was the way he, he had the design of that music. And he was a guy that really, he kind of heard that. So we always look at, we approach the music from more of a, a an emotional standpoint of view. So we don't often play songs that are as free as on that. But, you know, we have a couple of songs. Which one should we do a little bit of that? BTA? Yeah, we, we, uh, Mingus. Mingus. we could do Mingus. BTA might, we could take Mingus. 
take that a little bit more. But yeah, why don't we play a little bit of that? We, we, before you start, <laughs> uh, we've been asked uh, if you're willing to go on for another hour because we're having so much fun and the music is so great. You play a lot of music. It's up to that? the guy. The guy said that they're. Yeah, he said, as long as they get lunch. <laughs> we do have to play. Are y'all cool with it? It's up to y'all, man. We here now. We, why don't we go till, till 2.30, huh? Can we do that? Okay. It's got to be three. Wow. Okay. They're like. <laughs> okay, but meanwhile, you're going to play. We're, we're working. What y'all think, man? We might just have to go till two, man. Okay. Yeah. You know, okay. whatever, whatever is okay with you. Let's just do that. Or we can play to 2.30 and I can talk for half an hour. I like talking, so that ain't. Let us play. And then, I, yeah, let's yeah. do that, man. We'll okay. do that. What let's, do you want to play, play now? Some more. We got Miss Tanya Boyd up in here, so we're going to do it. Well, we talk a little bit about the freeness. Why don't we let Miss Tanya Boyd? No, we play something, too. What y'all think? TBC. Here we go. It's called CBC? Hi, welcome to our show. Thank you for having us. So oh. happy to be here. It's been a thrill. Yeah, you're right. It must be a thrill singing with a group like this. Man, working with him, yeah. pray for me. <laughs> 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 no, I enjoy. I, I learned so much from him. It's like being with. I grew up with brothers, so having more is merry. So you wish you could be back on the Voice? No. <laughs> I mean, um, great opportunity. Now that you know so much more. Yeah, great opportunity. However, um, learning more, experiencing these opportunities have presented themselves to be more valuable learning experiences. Uh, not to take away from those moments, but um, I feel field experiences also always make you grow stronger. So yeah. Okay, what are we listening to now? Jazz the part. Come on. Jazz what part. You got? Uh. One, Hey, come 
having a jazz party here in the WBAI studios on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. That was Tanya Boyd Cannon on the vocals of that. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and that was Amari Ansari on the alto, that yes, beautiful alto yes, solo. Sir. Wow. Yes, sir. So that's the uh, title of your new that's CD. It. Only seven, despite the fact that you've produced how many? A hundred? Well, only seven because I've produced how many? A <laughs> hundred. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, for me, um, the, the recordings came along at important times when I felt I had something musical to say. And uh, my concept has shifted over the years. In fact, uh, going more towards the New Orleans sound. Mm -hmm. Even though I would say, even from the beginning, Pontius Pilate's decision, I always had an affinity for the kind of the funky sound and the groove. It was more what we consider the modern sound. And now, instead of bringing the traditional to the modern sound, I'm bringing more of the modern mm -hmm. to the traditional sound. So later when we go out, you'll play oh, So I, New Orleans? Uh, yeah, I, which, you know, and I, I apologize, but I hate to, to go back on. I know we said we were going to, no, I understand. I think we're going to have to uh, finish up two. These guys made a commitment to do an hour on the air, and I really appreciate uh, because yeah, this has been fabulous. Yes, sir. And then I'm like, man, I'm not going to talk for no 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we go through? We got we got a couple of tunes we're going to play. Uh, but I just want to ask you a few more questions. Okay. You, you because I want yeah, to talk about too. New Orleans a bit more. You also worked on a number of interesting projects. Most recently, yeah. as the music producer of the film called Bolton. Now mm -hmm. I remember that uh, Jelly Roll Morton performed a song when I. It's something I've known all my life. Uh, I thought I heard Boldy Buddy Bolden say. Right. Uh, he uh, didn't. Your brother Winton once record a very Dixieland sounding version of it under the title. Funky Butt? Uh, it, we wouldn't say Dixieland necessarily. It would be more traditional New Orleans song. Okay, traditional New Orleans. Winton, I was trying to c come up with the right word. He, he played a song called... Uh, but song it, called? It w the lyric was, I thought I heard Buddy Bolden say. Who was Buddy Bolden? Anyway. I thought I yeah. heard Buddy so Bolden So Buddy Bolden say. was a, a legendary... Uh, Trump, really legendary because it's it's more like legend. There are no existing recordings of him, and the descriptions of him was actually he was probably our first authentic pop musician. Mm -hmm. He played uh, music that the people really loved. They loved that, and uh, the earlier musicians said he might have played a little more loudly than they prefer. But it was just supposedly he could play, and you could hear him all the way down the Mississippi River. He just played with a big fat sound, and he he is often credited with what we call the Big Four. And that's a certain drum pattern. That's the basis of New Orleans music. On the other hand, you also released Sweet Thunder, a reworking of the Duke Ellington Billy Strayhorn Suite. Mm -hmm. So you well covered full range. Yeah, you know, and I'm, the main thing that's important to me, though, is I, 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 I distinguish between repertory bands. And the repertory bands are those that they want to sound authentic to and to what the band played at a particular time. And I, I'm not interested in that at all. I think the music always has to have contemporary modern elements and even with Sweet Thunder I was uh, you know honored to be able to play that for Clark Terry and my senior John Sanders they were the last remaining members of the Ellington Orchestra that were still around at the time and they both were complimentary and, and felt that they were regretful that Duke actually mm -hmm. couldn't hear it but Mr. Ellington he said that they thought that their feeling was that he would have been proud of that particular effort Sweet Thunder so I, I uh, it's a good. It's a. It's a good time. We re we recently uh, did a tribute to Johnny Hodges on this show. Uh, mm -hmm. Pretty great alto player. Uh, just one more thing before you play another 
uh, thing. Uh, teaching seems to be a big part of what you do. You, you mentioned uh, the Uptown Music Theater, an organization you formed in 2000. How important do you think it is to expose children to music at an early age uh, as listeners and also as potential musicians? That's very important, uh, the arts in general. And, and through the arts, children are able to not only find things about, even adults really, you find out about yourself, but also it teaches you uh, compassion and understanding and sympathy and empathy, many things that we'd be better served with some of our politicians today if they spent more time with the arts. It just, it, it requires you to reach inside of yourself a certain way, you know, not to focus only on yourself, but to learn about yourself. And, uh, you know, all the, the great cultures have understood the importance of that. You look at the, the Native Americans and the, the Africans and not only them, but of course we could say since they've got the, the, the raw end of the deal in so many aspects that music was always an important part of, of life. Not just like, oh, well, we got to go study music, but it is an integral part of our being. And yet we have people in Congress who are talking about cutting arts funding. Well, it's, again, it's just a lack of understanding and I, I just all we can do is pray for the world now because the things that are important and you know I did the the, the first recording was called Make America Great Again the the short version of was how that it, an ironic title yeah the the short version of how it came up it was one of the songs that we created on the spot and uh, you know we thought that maybe more people would have gotten out and vote and that you know we were a couple of votes shy of it becoming uh, more comical than it ended up being but. Uh, My take on it is, you know, we surveyed a, a number of people, and we said, you know, if you're going to make America great, we have to point, pinpoint a single day that we say this was the greatest single day in American history. And there's no question that that would be 1492, the day before Columbus showed up. <laughs> the day before. <laughs> and, if, boy, if we could get back to that. You know, there was no pollution. The buffalo was running wild. You know, people were, were living off the, the land and loving the land. and Nobody was, was being made into a slave. Yeah, man, it's, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. I don't know about that, but they probably had that going on. It probably was No, 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 no. He, probably not Columbus as brutal. Enslaved oh, you mean some here. of the people in the Caribbean. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, th there's always that thing where you have a certain type of power structure, but this, you know, man, it's, yeah, it's what it is. Well, on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. We're going we're gonna to play a song now that we're going to pay tribute to the folks that sacrificed a lot, but they left a, a lot behind. This is called Back to Africa.
what sounded like free jazz there from uh, Carrie Allen Lee on alto. Who who played the trumpet solo? That's which was Andrew Bayham. Yes. Andrew, Scott Frog deferred. <laughs> we're we're close to out of time. Yes, sir. I was going to ask you to do one more. I'm so New Orleans. If, New we're gonna Orleans, if we could do a, a three-minute version oh, of it. Oh, yeah, we got but it. But wait, well, let me thank everybody here. And by the way, I love the sound of the baritone sax and the drummer. Swing so hard, really. <laughs> That's Joe why Dyson we hired Jr. him. Thank you, Joe uh, Dyson. Yes, sir. <laughs> but no, uh, this is, yeah. a reminder that uh, you're going to be doing a number of different things. You're going to be tonight at the uh, Rockwood Music Hall. Rockwood Music Hall, stage off two. At, at stage two at eight thirty. That's Allen Street and Lower East Side. Uh, showtime eight thirty. We'll be at the Iridium tomorrow night. Iridium. 9.30, uh, that's at 16.50 Broadway, and then there is the the new CD called Jazz Party. And then Sunday we'll actually be at Clements, which is uh, over in uh, New Jersey. In New where? York. Clements. It's we have a lot of listeners in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, they, they know where it is. Okay. <laughs> well, Clements Place. If you could just give us a, the three-minute version. Okay, what uh, time do we need to stop exactly? Uh, well, I have to do a little outro, so 57.58. 58 it is, right? Okay. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Come on now, huh? All all the way from New Orleans, y'all. All make it do just what it do. Yes, indeed, represent New Orleans, y'all. Uptown Jazz Orchestra. We are so New Orleans. I'm so New Orleans. We like syncopated beats with uptown grooves. When you hear that big bass drum, yeah, you can't help but move. I'm so New Orleans, from the West Bank to the East. No matter where you live, drop that beat, we buck jump in the streets. I'm so New Orleans, being petty is how we roll. Yeah, the NFL don't want the Saints to ever win another Super Bowl. I'm so New Orleans, I be pretty as Wild Chapatula's Mighty Grade. And when they hit this uptown funk, yeah, you know we coming to slay. I'm so New Orleans, I remember when living in the night war meant that you was poor. But nah, not no more, that's where all the hippies really want to go. I'm so New Orleans, I remember Buddy Bowling Blues and the birthplace of jazz. Our music be so funky, make you shake your thing and shake it fast. I'm so New Orleans, I remember crawfish was $1.27 a pound. Hey, Roger Lewis, give me some of that New Orleans funky sound. How we do it all the way from New Orleans, y'all. Uptown's in the house. I'm so New Orleans. All aboard. Yes, indeed. We are so New Orleans. Yeah. Oh, God.
Scott. Thank you so much. And that kind of brings us to the end of today's show. We have special thanks to Todd McGovern, who produced this segment. And we hope that you'll join us again on Monday when Zev Feldman and Will Friedland, Friedwald will discuss a new box set they helped assemble of the very early recordings of another great jazz man, Nat King Cole, when he was a wonderful pianist. Have a great weekend. Thank you.